Good morning. My name is Dan. I'm one of the speakers here, and we are going to be going through Isaiah chapter 17 and 18. Uh, you can turn to that. When I was about 17 years old, it seems a long way away, my, uh, my twin brother, who up until that age, I'd spent nearly all of my waking hours with, he started dating a girl. And uh, neither of us had dated before, so this actually, I legitimately say, this changed everything. And all of a sudden, something strange happened. I really started wanting a girlfriend, too. Funny how that works. I did not just kind of attract myself to, like, this girl or, or that girl, youth group, of course. Um, but, but eventually, it didn't matter if they were Christians, as long as they were just, like, nice. And every time, nothing happened. And for years, I was just angry. Angry at God, angry at the girls, angry at myself, didn't matter. Until, years later, when I actually got married, and I looked back, and I considered how my life might have turned out if I would have got, a, got what I wanted in that moment. My conclusion, when I finished that consideration, was that I was very glad for God's son. How many times has something like that happened to you? You want God to do something quickly, e even something very good, and his apparent slowness baffles you or angers you in the moment. But when you look back much later, you say, oh, that's why he did that. That's what we're going to talk about today. God's timing and how it's trustworthy even when it's confusing. Or even if we die before everything seems to be tied up in a nice little bow. If you look at the map of the book of Isaiah that's in your bulletin on the inside left page, You'll notice we finished point one, subpoint A, a few weeks ago. There, God prophesied all the ways he would deal with, he would discipline, and yet he would restore his people, Israel. Now we're in subpoint B. We're seeing God pronouncing judgment on all the nations that are against Israel. And this subpoint might seem repetitive already, even though we're only a few weeks into it. And by the way, if it doesn't seem repetitive, we're going to be in it until September. But there's a reason for it. Here's the reason. It's because Israel has a lot of enemies. In other words, they're going to need a lot of comfort. And so God is writing to his people at great length, to give them a lot of comfort. And so will the preachers here at Grace Fellowship. We've already looked at two of the biggest enemies. 
Babylon and Moab. And we've seen that God will defeat them completely, but it doesn't just end there. He's going to raise up a a new king, Jesus, who's going to take a, a remnant of those people, and he's going to rule over a new nation. And Israel is invited to that party too. And so today we're going to talk about two more enemies of Israel and God. And my hope is that you see even more of God's character and you see his biblical plan unfold just a little bit more. Here's the new angle you're going to see today. In God's time, God will judge. And in the end, only his kingdom will stand. The emphasis is on in God's time. I'll show you some comparisons between these two lands. They will both fall the same as the others, but in radically different timelines and in radically different ways. One, as you'll see on your outline, will have a fate that looks more like sudden loss. And the other will have a fate that looks like microscopic decay. But both are clear examples of God at work. And so God is simply comforting Israel with these words. That they would trust him and not lose heart. But that they would see his hand over everything. From that, my hope is that we would also learn to not lose heart. But that we would be fully satisfied in God's timing. Let's start by taking a look at Damascus in chapter 17. And as I read, I'd like you to pay attention and take note of all the time-related words and phrases. So we're on point one. God's judgment is sudden loss. And I'll read chapter 17. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Arawar are deserted. They will be for flocks which will lie down and none will make them afraid. The fortress will disappear from Ephraim and the kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. And in that day, the glory of Jacob will be brought low and the fat of his flesh will grow lean. It shall be as when the reaper gathers standing grain and his arm harvests the ears and as when one gleans the ears of grain in the in the valley of Rephaim. The leanings will be left in it. As when an olive tree is beaten, two or three berries in the top of the highest bough, four or five on the branches of a fruit tree, declares the Lord God of Israel. In that day a man will look to his maker and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands, and he will not look on what his fingers have made, either the Asherim or the altars of incense. In that day, their strong cities would be like the deserted places of the wooded heights of the hilltops, which they deserted because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation, and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants, and sow the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow on the day that you plant them, and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, Yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. Ah, the thunder of many peoples, 
They thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of the nations. They roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but he will rebuke them and they will flee far away. Chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind and whirling dust before the storm. At evening time, behold, terror before morning. They are no more. This is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. Now, there is so much detail in here that I'm not going to dwell on. I think you already get the picture, especially if you've been coming the last few weeks. The devastation is going to be immense. The fall is going to be great. And there will even be a remnant preserved. But look at the timing of how this happens. Because I think it stands out, especially when we weigh it against the next chapter when we get there. Verse 3, the fortress will disappear from Ephraim. So the imagery is sudden. Verse 4, in that day, implying a short amount of time. And verse 5, judgment shall be as when the reaper gathers standing grain. I'll just take a moment and explain that. If you have farming experience, you know that we get it done a lot fancier these days. But back in the day when you were harvesting, you go around with a big blade and you just kind of, and that's how you'd harvest your wheat, your standing grain. It would be sudden. It would be quick. It would be like a breath. That's how Damascus would fall. And then verses 7 and 9, again the phrase, In that day, verse 11, though you make them grow on the day that you plant them and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. Sudden, severe. And there's a bit more similar phrasing in verse 13, but I'll skip that. And then finally in verse 14, perhaps the most chilling words, At evening time, behold, terror before morning. They are no more. It's like going to sleep scared and never waking up. This is specific. This will happen all at once for Damascus. And if you're familiar with history, that's how it happened. Damascus was overthrown, in fact, multiple times. Now, everyone alive during Isaiah's time would actually die before it happened. But it happened, and when it did, it was sudden. The first clear record of defeat came by Alexander the Great in about 320 B.C. And it was sudden, because it was Alexander the Great. The second such example, and perhaps even the more severe defeat, was a month-long siege, concluding with a literal one-day total conquest by the Muslims on September 19, 634 A.D., about a thousand years later. But the point is, for Damascus, management and culture changed dramatically, swiftly, and several times. Now, as an aside, 
I don't want to ignore this, even though I won't take too much time on it. If you have even a basic knowledge of world geography, you know that Damascus is still standing today. It's the capital of Syria. In fact, it's called by many to be the longest existing city in the world. And that sounds like it's mocking verse 1. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. Seems like anything but. I don't think it does, though. And I've got so many thoughts on this that that point alone could be its own sermon. And I will say, if you'd like to talk about that later with me during fellowship time, that'd be great. I'd love to. But my point as far as this sermon goes is that God makes a promise, and the promise is that Damascus will not have the last laugh. And he does it to bring his people comfort. Because all the people reading this would all die before that promise would be fulfilled. And I think it's safe to assume that some people during the time of Isaiah died wondering, is God going to do it? Will he? Or is this the end? But here's the thing. Even if some doubted in the moment, many would look back later in history at these ancient words and they would see it happen and then they would be convinced. And God be praised for that. But the implication for Israel is if it's before the promise or if it's looking back after the fact, as it was throughout history, when God promises something, that promise is as good as fulfilled. So like Israel, our response is to simply do this. Trust the promises of God, even if the details aren't clear, even if the timing isn't our preference. And in this case, the promise is that judgment is coming. But, more often for for Israel and for us, and perhaps more surprisingly, God's judgment often looks far more subtle than it did for Damascus. And that's the second oracle, chapter 18. Let's take a look at Cush. God's judgment is microscopic decay. Chapter 18. Ah, land of whirring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends ambassadors by the sea and vessels of papyrus on the waters. Go, ye swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. All you inhabitants of the world, you who dwell on the earth, when a signal is raised on the mountains, look! When a trumpet is blown, hear! For thus the Lord said to me, I will quietly look for my dwelling, like a clear heat in sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the blossom is over and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he cuts off the shoots with pruning hooks and the spreading branches he lops off and he clears away. They shall all of them be left to the birds of the prey and mountains and to the beasts of the earth. 
and the birds of prey will summer on them, and the beasts of the earth will winter on them. At that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth, from a, a people feared near and far, a nation, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide, to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. Now that might not have seemed too much different than chapter 17. Or chapter 16, really. The harvest imagery, in fact, might be very similar. And the fall itself might seem swift when you look at it. But look at the setup. You have to squint to see it. It's almost invisible. Look at, look at verse 4. For thus the Lord said to me, I will quietly look for my dwelling like clear heat in sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. You can barely see heat, and you can barely see dew. Look at how the Lord is operating, quietly. It's like sneaking into a room full of people. And that same harvester's sickle comes out. And gradually, without even being aware of it, the enemies of God are quietly emptied of their lives. One by one until the room is empty. So how gradually does this happen? Well, historically speaking, Cush was burned to the ground. What happened? Cush was located on the southernmost portion of Egypt. And it was incredibly wealthy because it was Egypt. Overuse of the land over centuries had slowly depleted its resources. You hear what I'm saying? They prospered themselves to death. It's like they were gone before the opposing army even showed up. Cush was a ghost town when the armies arrived. They just dried up. And this was done around the same time that Damascus was conquered by Alexander the Great in around 330 B.C. And it was burned out of pity. And from that, I make an observation about this form of judgment. We don't normally attribute the fall of places like Cush to God, do we? I don't know about you, but I am often far too rational and far too progressive to do that. You know, we blame socialism or we blame capitalism or we blame foreign policy. We dress it up. And I'm not saying that stuff doesn't matter. But at its core, do you know what happened to Cush? God happened to Cush. Two very different methods 
and two very different timelines. But the same God, one sudden and one microscopic, but God is working both cases. He comes as as sudden loss, and he comes as microscopic decay. These chapters tell us something very significant about God. His fingers are guiding all of history, not just the big ones, not just the floods and the earthquakes. Every little bit is God. Every nation's rise and fall, whether it's loudly or quietly, has God's signature. It's all part of his plan. And it's done for the comfort of his people. It always has been. That should bring us to one of two responses. Whether you're an Israelite or whether you're us. Here's the response. If you're aligned with God, no matter how slowly or weirdly it plays out, you live at the end of the story. The enemies go down. But if you are opposed to him, no matter how strong your kingdom is or how it plays out, it dies in the end of the story and so do you. So you don't go by little nuances of socialism and capitalism and economic prosperity. Eventually you end up in one camp Or you end up in the other camp. Let's consider this in light of the whole biblical narrative. Both of these oracles, if you're listening, are fulfilled between the time that this new king that Isaiah is foretelling, Jesus, is promised and when he actually comes. But consider the timing and the method. The Jewish people... By the time Jesus actually comes, they're in a particularly low point in terms of power. And so what are they expecting? They're expecting a thundering king to give them one of these swift political victories over Rome. Just like Damascus. Sudden and swift. And what kind of king did they get? They got a king who healed the poor. They got a king who rode on a donkey. They got a microscopic king who came as a baby and died on a cross. That's why his disciples scattered without hope. They were expecting a king who would win loudly for them. And instead, they got a king who loved them enough to die quietly instead of them. God's hand was guiding all of it. They missed it, but it didn't matter. It still happened. And here's how that timing, I'd like to say, looking back, was even more perfect. The earlier judgment on Israel, the time of Isaiah, via Babylon, this judgment tucked them away in a small corner of the Roman Empire at the height of Rome's power. 
when all the nations would gladly flock there. And at this cultural nexus, at this point in history when Jesus would come, when Israel seemed at its lowest, God got the gospel out to the nations via Rome. The method and the timing seemed crazy. But when we look back, it was perfect. Many in Israel, like I said, they missed that. Before Jesus came, during his time here, and even now, many miss it. So distracted with numerologies and prophecies. Because they're so consumed with their place in the story instead of Jesus' place in the story. All of these oracles back here in the time of, of, um, of Isaiah, they were ultimately pointing not to Israel's return of power. These oracles pointed to the cross. Where instead of God's wrath pouring out on the other nations, it was poured out on Jesus, paying the penalty for the world's sin. And then, he would send his redeemed enemies out into the nations to build the new kingdom. And after he sent his disciples out, Jesus ascended, and we got perhaps the best and the last oracle. When we were told by angels that Jesus will return to judge the earth. And guess what? They didn't tell us when. Just like Damascus and Cush. We don't know when. But it's a promise from God. And so our job is to believe it. So our application is the same as Israel. It's point two. Be satisfied in God's timing. Be satisfied in God's timing. Now, a small, neatly resolved example of this was my opening story about my dating habits. But I'm willing to bet that for every story like that, where people struggle to trust God in the moment and then they get to look back and they get to say, I get it. I'm willing to bet there's ten stories without clear resolution. Stories about loss. Stories about death. Stories about broken relationships. Stories about sins that won't seem to quit. Here's the one I'm currently struggling with. I said this in a previous sermon, but the news can be very, very distracting to me. On, every, on any given day, I might hear whispers that this country is falling apart, or something about the economy tanking, or I hear that some country now has nukes, or some other country just killed off a bunch of Christians. And I am so tempted to put my shovel down and to look up at God and say, Will you hurry up? Can you relate to that? 
He's tired of waiting. One head, that's it. <laughs> I'll give you time. So here's one little way that I've been applying this text to my heart. This is week. Say I'm reading the news. Whether I went hunting for it or it inevitably popped up on my news feed, it doesn't matter. Here's what I've been doing. I literally point to whatever words or phrases are provoking me to be sad or angry or fearful. And I say this sometimes out loud. God is working this out for his glory. I ascribe it to God. We need to do that. What's happening right there is that I am audibly reminding myself of two very important things, maybe more. Number one, God is crafting history in his time, not mine. Because if I don't do this, by the way, what happens is I stop ascribing it to God, and all I do is I look for God in the big stuff, the earthquakes, the tsunamis, and I stop thanking him and praising him and waiting on him to be little bits of news. And then I just I just start making stuff up. So I need to acknowledge God is crafting history in his time, not mine. And secondly, God is working all things together. So there's a sense to it. It's Romans 8.28. God's working all things together for those who love him. Right again. And that sounds like a weird thing to do while you're sitting at the breakfast table. Shout at the newspaper. But do you see the freedom that happens when you do that every day? Say you get any form of bad news. You'll notice because your blood pressure will go up. You get sad or mad or whatever. That's when you know it's happening. Stop in that moment. Say, God's working this out for his glory. I actually do this with my kids kind of every day because they're kids. When I, when I see their cute little faces just scrunch up because I told them some evening um, that they can't do something until tomorrow and they get mad or sad, that's tomorrow. It's like a whole day. You know what I tell them? First off, I say, I love you because they're really anxious. Secondly, I say this. You know, I know nighttime seems like forever, but to me it's like a moment. You can trust me. It's the exact same thing. It's how God sees it. What is it to him? It's a moment. Parents, that's a reminder to be gentle with your kids. And kids, that's a reminder that you can trust your parents. Whether child or adult, it takes a lot of training. We train ourselves to be satisfied. We remind ourselves that God is working it out for his glory in his time. And because God is quick to forgive and slow to anger, he's not like us. We can take comfort even as we struggle to do this. Even if the nighttime seems forever. There's a lot more I could say, but I'm going to make this kind of general appeal if I get a little bit more specific with application. Can you wait on the Lord? Can you wait on the Lord? 
say you're young, hypothetically, and you're, you're anxious. Or you're just feeling pressure to get married, get them grandkids moving. Or you're just feeling pressure to get a stable job. Say you're a young parent, and now you have those things. You have the kids and the jobs, and you're realizing this isn't how I expected it to go. And you look like you're about to rip at the seams at any moment. Or say you're someone of any age here, and you're struggling with any form of mental or physical ailments for a long time. You just can't seem to get better. When God's timing seems crazy, point to whatever the source of that craziness is and say, God is working this out for his glory. Train yourself. And redeem that time where you'd normally spend your time fretting, pray. When you're normally spending your time anxious, pour through your Bible. And look at all the examples throughout history, including right here in Isaiah, where you see God's plan unfolding in his time over thousands of years. And long after you're gone. And take comfort in the fact that though the details of the rest of your story might play out in kind of a strange way. If you are aligned with God, you live at the end of that story. Now this should not drive you to sit and do nothing in the meantime. This is not a waiting room. Pray for these good things. If you feel God's call to marriage, pray for that. Pray for physical healing. And pray for mental healing. And don't just react to the news. Go make the news. But most of all, remember that your time here on earth is very, very short. On average, we get 70 years. That's a blip on the radar of eternity. In fact, if you know anything about eternity, a blip is an overstatement. It doesn't register. And I say that because all of those things that you're anxious about and you're desperate about and you want right now those things that tempt you to curse God and to make demands, they're all gone. They disappear. Our old bodies, praise God, disappear. Our earthly marriages disappear. Our jobs disappear. And all we have left is the best thing. The thing that God has offered us all along. God has offered us himself forever. Forever where there is no need for timing.
How much would God's kingdom advance if we weren't so concerned about our little place in the story? And instead, we spent our time consumed with Jesus' role at the center of that story. May we rid ourselves of our unbelief. May we be satisfied in Jesus alone. And from that joy, may we eagerly make disciples of all nations. Until the day we go to see Jesus, or until the day he returns, whenever that is. <laughs>